Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm talking today with my friend and colleague, Dr. Amishi Jha, PhD. Amishi is Director of Contemplative Neuroscience and Professor of Psychology at the University of Miami. She leads research there on the neural bases of attention and the effects of mindfulness-based training programs on cognition, emotion, resilience, and performance in education, corporate, elite sports, first responder, and military contexts. In her laboratory at the University of Miami, she uses functional MRI, electrophysiological recordings, and behavioral analysis techniques to understand why our attention sometimes fails us and if it can be trained for greater focus. In addition to her own published body of research, her work has been featured in TED.com, NPR, and Mindful Magazine and has been presented to NATO, the UK Parliament, the Pentagon, and the World Economic Forum. Her first book, Peak Mind, Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day, is coming out in October of 2021 from HarperCollins. Welcome to the podcast, Amishi. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's so great to speak to you. I, I should tell people we are very good friends. I've often stayed at Amishi's house when I've been visiting and teaching in Miami, and I am a super night owl, and she is not. And I've tortured her by many conversations into the wee hours, like, what do you think about this? And what about that? And what are the ethics of that? <laughs> so I love it. Now we're both kind of awake. It's nice. <laughs> it is. And I'm, I'm really thrilled about your new book and, and many congratulations for that. Thank you so much. And before we, we talk about the book, can you tell our listeners a bit more about what led you to become interested in studying attention? Sure. Yeah. I would say that my interest probably more broadly was in studying the human brain. The whole time I was growing up, I thought I was going to be a medical doctor partly just because of cultural norms, uh, being an Indian person, that was one of my career options, I guess, inculcated within me. But I just could not stand volunteering at hospitals. It just wasn't my thing. I ended up uh, actually, one of my volunteer gigs was in a brain injury unit. And just that woke me up to this notion that this brain is fascinating, especially seeing people that had come in with severe injuries actually improve to the point where it seemed like they had somehow figured out how to train their own brain for improvement or, you know, their physical therapy and, and other kinds of therapy were really helping. So I got broadly interested in the brain and then realized that one of the very powerful ways the brain can be altered sort of moment by moment is through this system called attention. And that was it. I was hooked. Mm. So your book is out on October 19th and explores the power and nuance of attention. So here's a quotation from it. Your attention determines what you perceive, learn, and remember, how steady or how reactive you feel, which decisions you make and actions you take. 
how you interact with others, and ultimately your sense of fulfillment and accomplishment. So clearly attention is very important. How are you defining attention? Yeah, it's very important and very broad in many ways. Uh, And I want to start out by just saying that, you know, attention is a success story of our brain's evolution. And it really evolved to solve a big problem that the brain has had then and then continues to have is that there's far more information in the environment and actually generated within our own mind than we can fully process. So attention, I would say most broadly, is a powerful capacity that the brain has to deal with this problem. And in particular, what it allows us to do is advantage or privilege processing some information over others, other types of information. So we can think about that as, for example, you know, if you, you're walking somewhere, you're privileging what part of space you're going to focus on so you can make sure you, you don't trip or you just can have a clear path. Or you might want to make sure that you're paying attention to what's happening in a particular time frame, like right now, what is going on right now. Or you want to privilege information that has to do with certain priorities you have or a goal that you might have in mind. So all of these are different ways in which we have to consider some information being more important and more relevant than other information. And broadly speaking, attention helps us do that, allows us to do that. So if evolutionary pressures are are creating that sort of attention bias, what's it like for us today? You know, there's so much coming at us. Do you think it's it's different in some way? You know, it's funny. It, we think that this is a very special time for distractibility. Mm-hmm. But you can go back hundreds of years and there's writings from medieval monks that talk about, oh, my mind just keeps wandering and I keep <laughs> focused and... And then you get kind of humbled, like, oh, this is not just a modern problem. This is a human problem. And all those things that we talked about with regard to the power of attention and restricting information processing for some kinds of information versus others, sometimes the information that we're going to privilege is whatever we create in our own minds, which we might call mind wandering. And that is a perennial problem, I mean, really through the ages. But I would say mostly these days, if we think about what are the kind of pressure points? Why does it feel like we're in a crisis of attention? A lot of it has to do with our technology, right? So Mm -hmm. it could be just like the ping of our phone or notifications popping up or just the onslaught of information and demand and reachability through our technology. And there is a real um, uptick in in that happening. That's just the reality of, of having this type of environment these days. But our attention isn't actually any different, meaning... We were designed to be able to, through the course of evolution, we were really designed to be able to snap to focus when something salient or self-related or threatening or interesting or tied to our survival was happening around us. And that's exactly what happens, except that now it might be the ping of your cell phone calling you to look at a text, right? Not Mm -hmm. necessarily a, a tiger that's about to attack you. The brain is still doing the exact same thing. Something occurs that seems important, boom, you shift to it. That's not necessarily a problem. The problem is not that our brain does this. It's just its its way. Uh, The problem is that puts us in this constant state of what people might colloquially call multitasking. So you're trying to write an email, you're trying to even listen to a podcast, and something pulls you away from that desired task. And when that happens... which really isn't multitasking. You're not doing two things at once. You're task switching. So you're focusing on one thing 
And then you get pulled away and then you're focusing on that. And then you've got to kind of bring yourself back, which, which we really is, is this form of, of task switching. And it ends up that that capacity is very powerful. It's great that we can task switch, but it's also very energetically costly and frankly, cognitively exhausting, which we all know. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. feeling most of us get from this constant onslaught of, of interfacing with this kind of world. So I think that's part of the current crisis is this sense of exhaustion, which is, I don't really know where my attention is. It feels like it's getting pulled in a thousand directions and I'm trying to tame it to just show up where I need it to be. So I think that's a big one. No, that's that's amazing and very true. Yeah. So in the book, you talk about three forms of attention, the flashlight, the floodgate, and the juggler. And can you elaborate on how our attention works in different ways? Yeah, you know, and it's funny. Those are really just for me, handy metaphors. A lot of it started from talking to my children about what I do and having trying to help them understand how the brain does what it does. So the flashlight is something we formally call the brain's orienting system. It's it's what I was saying a moment ago. When we want to direct our attention to a certain part of space, we we can. We can do that. And that is through this kind of mental flashlight. And whatever it is that the flashlight is directed toward, we have better access, privileged processing of that information. Um, so just like in a darkened room, wherever you direct the flashlight, you'll be able to see there and really not anywhere else. We do that with our minds and And it is the case that when we direct our focus to something, sights are more crisp and clear, sounds are more, you know, we can comprehend and and understand them better. Uh, Same thing with all of our sensory experience. And the flashlight isn't only for the external landscape. We can use the flashlight for the internal landscape as well. So if we have particular memories or thoughts we want to direct to, those can become more salient in our mind relative to everything else that could be attended to. So the the flashlight is really about narrowing and 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 um, really like a laser focus if we even want to go to that level. The floodlight is the exact opposite. It's sort of and I always think of the floodlight I actually have on top of my garage, mm-hmm. which is just anytime there's a motion like that this thing comes on and, and what does it allow me to do? Well, if I look out my window, I can just broadly see anything that's happening in that moment. And that's what I was saying a, a little while ago regarding the power of attention. It's almost like it gives us a snapshot of everything happening right now in this moment. Broad, receptive, not privileging one thing over another, but just welcoming or aware of anything that's occurring in the here and the now. And this is formally called the brain's alerting system. And part of the reason we talk about it as alerting is because in the next moment, after you see what's going on, if any action is required, then you can snap to attention with your flashlight and do what's needed. So it's it, they work hand in hand, um, the flashlight and the floodlight, but the floodlight is very, very broad. And then the juggler really is around this notion of executive control. Um, I always think of the juggler as sort of managing all the different, you know, you got to keep all the balls in the air, just like the executive of a company. But the executive's job is not to actually do each individual task. It's just to ensure that everything is being done and that actions and goals are aligned. So the juggler helps us pay attention to our own priorities and our own goals so that we can direct and guide our behavior so it's aligned with with those goals. You share the incredible focused capacity that our attention can have in a research study that involved two basketball teams. Can you tell us something (laughs) about those findings? Yeah. So this is not my study. This is now a classic study 
um, called, uh, you know, affectionately by researchers and now many people call the invisible gorilla study and kind of give away the punchline there, but yeah. describe the, uh, let me describe what happened. So you uh, can do this and I've, I've actually done this multiple times. It's just a short video. You can show a group of people or you can watch it yourself. And what you're, what you, what you see on the video is the following, you know, I mean, let me just set it up. So you're going to see a group of people. Basically there are two basketball teams. One team is wearing white t-shirts. The other team is wearing black t-shirts. It's not a typical basketball game that you're going to see. What you're going to see is people within each of these two teams passing to other members of their own team. So the white shirted players will pass to other white shirted players. Same thing with the other team. And your job as the participant watching this video is simply to count the number of passes between members of the white-shirted team. So you play the video, and it's, it's chaotic. It's like this chaotic environment. You see a jumble of people kind of jumping up and down. There's balls flying around, and you're really carefully focusing in on those white-shirted players to ensure that you get every single pass counted. And you know, at the end, you stop the video and say, okay, tell me the answer. How many passes were there? And, you know, it might be 11. Yes, you got it right. So we have this amazing capacity. People feel proud of themselves. My attention's amazing. I was able to do this. Then you ask, did you notice anything else? And most people are like, uh, no, there's nothing else to notice. I did what you told me to do. Then you rewind the video and what you can very, very clearly see when you're not busy doing this task of counting passes is that a person in a gorilla suit, uh, walks onto the scene in, this, in the middle of this game, actually does a little dance right in the middle of your field of view, and then walks off. And we completely missed the whole thing. Um, which in many ways, you're like, how could I not notice a dancing gorilla? What an odd thing. But this is where I would say it does really highlight this capacity to focus. We can make a gorilla invisible. <laughs> That's really fabulous. And I would bet anything. I mean, I don't know if you've done this. Is uh, even if somebody knows the punchline, they'd still miss it. You know, like, <laughs> if they really try to do the task, they probably will because yeah. it is hard to count those count those. Or passes. we forget, you know, which brings me to my next question about what hinders our attention. And I wonder, you know, to what degree you found that it's kind of personal. Like some people are just spaced out, or some people are ruminating a lot about the past or, or something like that? Yeah, I mean, definitely there are individual differences in, in our, you might say, attentional profile, right? And this profile is almost, you could say, uh, different for each of the brain systems. Like some of us may have amazing focus, but we're not so great at broadening our attention or we're really good at keeping our priorities on, on hand, but we might not be able to focus all the time on specific things in our environment. Um, and... That's certainly true. But what we found in study after study, and actually it was this kind of finding that led me to bring mindfulness training into my own lab. Um, and what we found was that in study after study, we could perturb attention. We could make attentional performance worse by doing some very simple things. So when we when we stress people out, either time pressure them or, or stress them out in, in a number of ways, their performance is worse. When we put them in bad a bad mood, and you'd say, well, why would you ever do that in a psychology study? But we really were curious to see how negative emotions impact attention. So we do this by, you know, think of some difficult memories, play some music that you don't, you know, you find sad or negative. 
And we induce this, this negative state. And what we find is attention is worse in those conditions as well. And then same thing with threats. When we feel threatened, and it could be stereotype threat, like, you know, oh, as a woman, you might not be so great at X, Y, or Z, or as a, you know, whatever your personal background is, you're, you're, you're disadvantaged in this way, et cetera. We can stereotype um, different assumptions that people have, and then that feels threatening to us and preoccupies us and, frankly, reliably causes us to have poor attentional performance. So seeing these kind of big three over and over again, that stress, poor mood, and threat, when introduced into the laboratory setting, reliably degrade attention. I, I was just very struck by that. And it, and it also made me think, okay, well, what are the kinds of professions in which we don't have to create an artificial experiment for this. This is just the professional milieu. And people like medical and nursing professionals, uh, you know, military service members, first responders, and there's a whole host of professions where we expect people within those professions to perform at their peak with that being the professional climate. And uh, finding that out made me think, we got to figure out there must be some solution where we can offer training so that attention can be protected even under those kind of difficult circumstances that people might experience uh, beyond sort of the typical ups and downs of life. You work with folks in super high stress circumstances or as referred to as VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So have you, have you tried out different modalities? Um, did you find a practice that seems most beneficial for them daily? Yeah, you know, even before we got to mindfulness training, and I definitely want to talk to you about that, we tried a bunch of stuff. So maybe if you, if you know, if negative mood does this bad thing to attention, what if you just put them in a positive mood or train them to think mm -hmm. about positive things? That might maybe help. Or what if we had them play brain games, um, little puzzles they could do every day? Uh, maybe that would help strengthen attention. And or some kind of simple technology like lights and sound devices that kind of kept everything more activated and alert and nothing was working. We could not reliably find ways to help people strengthen their attention, um, which is again, what I was saying a moment ago, brought us to, to wanting to study mindfulness. And when we started introducing mindfulness practices, mindfulness training formally, attention was protected. So that was very, very encouraging. And what we did, because it was a big project, like how are you going to bring mindfulness to people that probably not only never heard of it, but might be outright resistant to it if they, if they, if they, they were only knew. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that in and of itself is an interesting, interesting topic that you and I have certainly um, mm -hmm. chatted about. But what we wanted to do is lean on the existing literature. And, you know, that time, and this was like the early 2000s. So mindfulness was certainly around, but it wasn't like it is around these days. Um, but we could look to the literature and find that there was this well-developed program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, developed by John Kabat-Zinn for medical clinics. Mostly uh, his motivation was for chronic pain patients. And we looked to see the suite of practices offered there and began with those. What we quickly realized is that, you know, things like a focused attention practice or mindfulness of, of breathing, very powerful thing to do. Um or body scan, or um, open monitoring practices, as well as uh, loving kindness practices. These are all very powerful and important things to do, and we included those in all of our in our, all of these many of these programs. But one of the pressure points was the time commitment, because all of these groups that are these VUCA type professions that have to function in those 
environments, they're extremely time pressured. And the MBSR program, for example, um, is about, you know, eight weeks, 24 plus hours and 45 minutes of daily practice. Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to do is see if we could offer the same type of practice suite, uh, you know, suite of practices and um, lower the time demands and still see uh, potentially see benefits. So I can't tell you which of the the main practices is the most beneficial because we do offer them as sort of cognitive cross-training, if you will, all four practices, uh, focused attention, body scan, open monitoring, and loving kindness, which we call connection practice, are all offered in most of the programs that we're, we're studying these days. So naturally, I'm curious about how people take to loving kindness practice uh, as as a you know question before we go on with with mindfulness training. Do you find people are resistant or interested or what? You know, this is where your guidance has been so helpful. And I don't know if you remember these conversations, but I remember the first time I was like, Sharon, I've got I've got to do this in a very short amount of time. I've got to teach people all these practices, and I got eight hours. And you're like. I don't know if that can be done. <laughs> so part of it was just trying to figure out what are the most critical elements of any of these practices to include mm-hmm. um, in the way we introduce them and the way we discuss them. And in our conversations and collaborations with people that are part of these professions, military service members and firefighters, for example, we asked them, um, how do you see the ki- type of practice that is offered in a loving kindness pr- exercise, loving kindness practice? as being a value. And might it be the case that there would be resistance? I mean, is there something we should consider? And, you know, the languaging can really make a difference because calling something loving kindness may off the bat not align with one's <laughs> self-view of like, well, yeah, that's great for you, but not I'm not doing that. Talking about connection is a very powerful thing that all of these groups understand. They work in teams. They understand what it means to have a Co- commitment and an, and a certainly a strong wish for the well-being of everybody on their team uh, and somebody like a battle buddy if it's really in that kind of a context. So that place seems to really work well. And because there may be conflictual interactions that happen with people on teams or through the leadership hierarchy, understanding that there's something else you can do instead of simply wishing for it to be different, feeling it uh, to be unpleasant um, or fighting against what's happening, this kind of basic well-wishing to others and understanding that that well-wishing actually serves to help you in your own mind and the way you orient uh, to interactions with other people has been reported to be quite quite beneficial. And um, we've even found actually that even though we don't talk about it this way, in a recent study we did with military spouses, for example, where we offered the same suite of practices in a program called Mindfulness-Based Attention Training uh, that I developed with my uh, colleague, Scott Rogers. Scott actually trained spouses to train other spouses. So it was a peer training program, a train-the-trainer context. And the spouses who were trained by their fellow spouses ended up showing uh, significantly greater levels of self-compassion after the program. Mm. Which we really loved that you know that 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 you know is helping other things too like like mood and stress levels and uh, even their their propensity toward mind wandering, but self compassion did stand out. So I do think that 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 element of the program is is quite beneficial and people report that it's it's helpful to them. 
I mean, that's kind of amazing. And also, you know, I think about those contexts and they are very tricky contexts. I remember being part of a program for veterans and their families many, many years ago. And uh, there were some pretty severely injured veterans there um, with traumatic brain injury or, or other things. And I remember looking, you know, or listening to their mother or their wife going a billion miles a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I saved them, you know, and I told the doctor this and I told the doctor that. And I was like, whoa, if you ever stop and take a breath and feel what has happened to your family, it would be extremely intense. Yeah. So I think that quality of self-compassion is is enormous, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that practice um, and the support of the other practices provide the kind of container that would allow one to even <laughs> take, to have the courage to take a breath, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That's part of it is that there's this momentum yeah. driven by many factors that makes it almost scary to stop. So I also want to talk about um, what you talked about a little bit before about assumptions and attention, because uh, I think there's so much in there, like kind of implicit, like when we talk about implicit bias and the reduction of implicit bias that might be possible through mindfulness training or um, other kinds of assumptions that we make, you know, like in uh, classical Buddhist psychology, they would talk about the kind of person who walks into a room and only sees what's nice, you know, and is kind of like thwarting off all recognition of what's unpleasant or difficult. And then there's the person who only sees what's difficult and unpleasant and they're, you know, they don't tend to even notice what's beautiful and, and wonderful in the very same room. And and then there's what's known in the psychological system as a diluted type, which is me to a T, you know, where you just kind of, you don't notice much because you're just sort of spaced out. And then when someone points it out, you go, oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's so much that can happen from, um, that kind of, of exploration of mindfulness and assumptions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is where, you know, if we think about the kind of suite of practices that are offered and the kind of capacities that might get developed, you know, the first way that I talk about it is find your flashlight. So you have this capacity to focus but do you know where you're focusing? Or is there an awareness of, of where that energy, that mental and cognitive energy is going? And going back to something you asked a little while ago regarding our current kind of crisis of attention mm-hmm. in our tech-focused world, that's part of the solution. I don't think breaking up with your phone is necessarily going to work. It's almost like saying you're going to break up with food. You know, you just it is part of our daily diet. We need it. We rely on it. It's part of life. But if we don't have an awareness of how we're interfacing with technology or with our own mind, if we don't know where our attention is in any moment, it really disadvantages us for taking action to do something differently. So when I think of the person that you mentioned uh, that might see only the positive or only the negative, first is to understand that I am biasing what I see in this way. And I also think that it helps with the um, 
the kind of uh, tendencies of mine to kind of not check in and or notice. So, you know, I think you're such a beautiful example who might de- describe herself as, <laughs> out, but who I would say is the pinnacle of someone who isn't in, in a, you know, my, in a willfully trained way, we can work toward getting our mind to uh, be different than it might be by default. So I don't know, is that kind of getting at the, what you yeah. were driving yeah. at? Yeah. And yeah. what, what about attention and implicit bias? Oh, yes. You know, this is where I think there's a lot of a lot of good work to be done yet. And where we can say our own capacity to know what what we are currently aware of Mm -hmm. something called meta awareness moment to moment. What are the kind of what's the content and processes that are at play right now? As we become more aware, that's when we can start taking action. And, you know, right now, I would say we're we're at this sort of interesting point where and I don't I don't know why this is the case. Most studies that have been done with mind, formal mindfulness training and implicit bias have not shown robust reduction in, in not mm-hmm. so much bias because I think measuring bias is, is a kind of a, a controversial topic topic in and of itself. But let's just say measuring uh, discriminatory behavior because bias can it's not just that we hold it, but then we act differently based on it. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness training studies aren't all that consistently showing a reduction with um, discriminatory behavior based on these kind of biased, uh, implicit biases. But loving kindness is continuing to show a lot of benefit there. So I think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an interesting uh, thing to see why that might be and what the kind of mechanisms are that uh, do that, that allow that to happen. But mm-hmm. it's certainly tied to expanding the scope of what we are aware of by curating and cultivating our capacity to pay attention differently. So if I were to ask you uh, about major remedies in a general sense for training our attention, would it be like that suite of four? That's what we're seeing so far. But there's one other thing I wanted to mention. I mean, I think training and mindfulness we're seeing consistently is beneficial for groups that happen to have these qualities of VUCA, right? Volatile, Mm -hmm. uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which unfortunately, I didn't know this when I started out this work, that, you know, almost two years later in a global pandemic, the whole world is essentially a VUCA environment. Things like the climate crisis too. It's not for specific populations and professions. It's all of us. So I think that this is now all of a sudden a uh, potential option that many people can engage in to deal with the kind of stressful, threatening, and uh, potentially negative circumstances that become the landscape of of all of our lives. Um, But there's something in addition to training and mindfulness that I think is very important to think in mind, to keep in mind. And actually, it relates to what you were asking at the top of our time together regarding sort of what is currently going on with our attention? What's the current, like, because people would probably say it's, we're in some kind of attentional crisis. And you hear this often, which the data does not suggest it's true. It's like, oh, we've got shortened attention spans now. It's like, no, we don't. We actually, uh, evolution doesn't work that fast. And the appearance of cell phones is not actually changing the core capacities we have. It's just that it's getting yanked around because attention is doing exactly what it should be doing. But there's another thing that's happening because of our, our constant ability to hop on our cell phone, get online, be available, and engage in what we'd call you know, any kind of task. Now, most people don't consider social media scrolling as a task, but for your brain, it is. Mm 
Um, you're, you're feeding it a particular kind of focus that it stays engaged within. Um, and you might be hyperlinking from thing to thing to thing, but it's still engaged. It's not actually willfully your brain. That is, it's not just doing whatever it wants. And that quality of doing whatever the mind wants unconstrained, we can call not even quality, but the thing that it does is called spontaneous thought. So spontaneous thought is, is something that very, very useful when there's nothing else going on. Spontaneous thought, when we're trying to get something done, we might call mind wandering. Like we're getting, our mind is pulling us away from what we're trying to do in some distracted way. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about we're trying to do something and our mind wanders away. I'm talking about not having anything to do and letting the mind wander. Something we might call daydreaming, or I just refer to it kind of more neutrally as spontaneous thought. If, if we don't allow ourselves to have certain periods of time daily, and I can't tell you exactly what the number is, but we're, we're studying it you know, actively to try to figure this out. If we don't allow our mind to have a free flow of conscious experience, unconstrained, without inputs that are specific, it costs us. It actually reduces our mood, drives up our stress levels. We don't have the capacity for having kind of insight and creative problem solving. Um, and it drives down our positive mood. So I would say, really think about, we, we should all be thinking about how can I regain some of those moments of spontaneous thought? Like when you're standing at the checkout line at a, at a grocery store, just just stand there, right? Don't check out. Or um, when you're anywhere waiting for anything or just on a walk without anything in particular that you need to think about, let your mind roam free. Uh, and that's not exercising attention, not engaging attention in this controlled way is just a really good thing to, to, to do. I got this image of the brain being like a puppy. It wants to do what it wants to do. It wants to jump up and down and run in a meadow and, you know, just roll over in the dirt and have a good time. And then, then it can come back and <laughs> pick up the mail or something, you know. <laughs> Exactly. Such a beautiful way to describe it. Like, let the mind do that, you know, off leash, just for some dedicated time every day. You know, I was looking at that description of VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I thought, that sounds like every single day these days, you know. Yeah. Uh, that That is, a, as you say, you know, a, a very widespread kind of experience. And I'm curious when, you know, you looked at MBSR and you felt that 45 minutes a day was like way too much commitment for people to undertake. Did you test every day versus a few days a week? Did you test different time periods? Yeah, you know, it was not even that I thought it was too much time. It was that the data told us that. So we started out um, with a program that was about 24 hours over eight weeks and asked people not even to do it 45 minutes a day, but 30 minutes a day. And rarely were people doing 30 minutes a day. They just weren't. And we were tracking it. So I wanted to see, because we we got the data. We, we actually tested their attention um, before they started the eight-week program and then at the end. And these were ac active-duty Marines in pre-deployment. So this is a high-stress interval. And um, and we found that, you know, first of all, the people that we didn't train, that were the Marines that were pre-deployment that we didn't train, their attention significantly declined over time. So 
we knew that high stress intervals are likely to do this, but we we saw it really for the first time in military cohorts with this study we did back in uh, 2010. And then when we offered the training, we found that that you know it was helpful, but only for people that actually practiced. So that's why I became curious about that number 30 minutes a day. And I, I wanted to see, well, okay, we know people aren't doing 30 minutes a day. What about those that benefited? On average, how much were they practicing? And actually the number we found ends up being the one that you mentioned at the at the top is, is on the cover of my book. It was around 12 minutes a day. So those that were practicing on average 12 minutes a day, they stayed stable in their attention over this high stress interval. Uh, even though those that got no training significantly degraded, but also those that did less than 12 minutes a day, they also significantly declined in their attention. So there seemed to be some type of minimum effective dose of daily practice that mattered. And I thought that was very important to know. Um, What we took a more careful look at was, well, what about if people did more? You know, they did more than 12 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. And yes, the very exciting news is just like physical activity, the more you do, the more you benefit. So the more people did relative to this 12 minutes, the more they benefited. And that's not just more minutes a day necessarily, but maybe even more frequency during the week in terms of the sessions that they did, et cetera. So it's going to be, it's probably, we're going to know a lot more in the next five years or so, because we'll be studying uh, practice and practice time in that way. But that's where the notion of, we need to make this so that it's not too heavy of a lift, but enough that people think it's, it's doable. Um, so that was just on the practice side. The other, the other part was just um, finding out how much time in a in a formal training they would need, because frankly, it was a scheduling issue. We could not get any military people to give us eight weeks, or mm-hmm. you know, eight weeks of time. So instead of just saying, "Well, take it or leave it," I said, "Well, why don't we test it out?" And we went from eight weeks to four weeks to two weeks, and we found that well, two weeks is actually too short. It did not have a successful impact on training people up. Four weeks was a little bit of a sweet spot where we saw reliably that offering the four practices over four weeks in this way did seem to have a beneficial effect. So that's how we're landing on it. I mean, with mindfulness, you know, it's not like pharmacology where we're going to precisely dose it and then give it out in like pills. Mm -hmm. It's humans and they may do what they want to do. And you could say 45, they might do zero. You could say 15 and they might do 30. So we just are watching to see. And that's what I meant by looking at the data tells us on average, what tends to be uh, sort of the range of minimum effective dose. So first I want to say I've just learned that data is plural from watching, you know, hundreds of epidemiologists, it feels like, uh, talking about COVID. You know, they say, well, the data are, and I think are, isn't it? It is, you know, but apparently it's plural. Um, So the first time I heard you talk about 12 minutes, we were uh, both on a Zoom panel uh, into Oxford University and um, and just in, in reinforcement of what you just said, uh, you know, I think you, you mentioned 12 minutes a day, three to five times a week. And, and I said that I, as a person, you know, like knowing myself three to five times a week is much harder than every day because it would be Monday and I think I'll start on Wednesday, <laughs> be Wednesday. I'll think oh, I'll do it three times on Saturday, but every day is every day. And so it's so stunning that um, there can be a measurable result from 12 minutes. Yeah. And I want to be very clear on what this, uh, what the result is, right? It's not, we haven't actually taken it to probably the next level of test, which is put people on a scanner, 
vary the amount of time and see what results in tractable brain changes. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a different kind of question. We're asking questions about when do we start seeing performance protection against performance declines mm-hmm. and protection against mood decline. And that tends to be about 12 minutes a day. Um, but I also just think it's it's a good kind of way in for people that think that might see, you know, images of, of monks on mountaintops and think, well, I'm never going to be able to go on like a three-month mm-hmm. retreat, so why do I even have to start? Mm-hmm. It's just an easier way in. And I think you described it so well. Like for me, I couldn't just decide which day of the week I might I might put it mm-hmm. off or whatever. And that's very important too is the thing about data are that that we're talking about an average response. We're talking about a statistical response. Each individual is different. And I don't know for any one particular individual exactly what the prescription is for you. I'm saying on average, based on study after study, this tends to be a range that is effective. So do what makes sense. You know, the, the kind of broadest, the the kind of broadest guidance would be do what makes sense for you. If you know you have these tendencies, maybe just commit to every day. And I would say if you're gonna do that, yoke it to something you already do every day, as as I know you've you've um guided people to think about as well. Um, but that it's not as long as you might think to actually start feeling better and actually seeing objective metrics change. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the military a little bit, which has been the subject of some of our many late night, early morning discussions, because I feel like I've watched a trajectory um, over time of, uh, you know, veterans coming back from really long wars, you know, which we've been engaged in as a country. Um with a lot of trauma and, and, you know, the initial efforts seemed to me to be about veterans and trauma and feeling, uh, you know, wondering if there were experiments in mindfulness and other practices that might be supportive uh, in a kind of healing regimen. And then, um, you know, there was kind of the idea floated like, well, maybe these practices can actually serve as some kind of preventative, you know, that uh, we are a nation with a military, people are going off to war, men and women, um, and their families are impacted, as, as you say. And um, can they be equipped with some other tools that might help, you know, um, given, I mean, look at, what we've all just witnessed in terms of Afghanistan and, um, you know, given the enormous stress and, and so on of, of that job. And, and, uh, first of all, am I correct that that was kind of a trajectory of, of approach? I would say I can speak from my entry point into Mm -hmm. this. And, and when we began this work in the military context, there really were no studies that had looked at active duty service members. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I think ours is the very, the study I did with um, Dr. Liz Stanley at Georgetown may have mm-hmm. been the very first study in which we examined a formal mindfulness program on active duty service members. It's certainly the case that the literature on mindfulness training in veterans is is much more robust than the the literature on active duty service members and and partly that is because unlike the challenges that are that we've faced uh, that I've my lab is in particular faced with having 
you know, you might even get the grant, but you can't get anybody to agree to take your project because they are so time pressured. Um, in, in, in the veteran context, you know, offering mindfulness training as a, as either adjunctive care, uh, complementing other existing therapies, or just as a, as a therapeutic approach in and of itself, there's time to do that. And so just to say study after study and now meta-analyses that are taking, you know, aggregates and examining and interrogating literatures suggests that it's very beneficial in the veteran population mm-hmm. or things mm-hmm. like anxiety, depression, uh, PTSD, and, and even chronic pain. So absolutely, that's a very robust um, enterprise. My thinking had always been, I, you know, I, just very personally speaking, um, I, was, I was born in the town uh, that Gandhi's ashram is in. I mean, I mm-hmm. never thought I would work in the military context ever. Um, I mean, I would even say that my kind of cultural background is in pacifism. But the reality is, yes, like you said, we live in a country where uh, we have a military and, and there's a political will to have that military do certain things. And and these are people, they're human beings, and they're being put in these incredible situations to do very demanding things that are, are often in the context of combat, but also in the context of humanitarian relief, like, for example, what's happening in Haiti right now. Um, you know, we're leaning on our military. Anytime there's a, even with the COVID uh, outbreak, uh, the first line of of sites that were doling out the vaccine were national guards. So there are many different reasons that the military gets called upon and many different kinds of activities. What are we doing to keep them mentally fit? You know, they know about how to exercise, but what are we doing to keep them mentally fit? And it's, it's often talked about as resilience, but I would say my, my interest is even prior to that. It's like pre-resilience. What do you do to keep them stable and strong so that as they come to face these difficult circumstances, they can do their job with discernment, with clarity, with exquisite um, holding of their own ethical code, et cetera. Because when you think about uh, veterans that suffer enormously, often it's that they don't feel that they were able to do that. They weren't able to do their job in a way that uh, that honored who they are and what they believe. And that's a tough, tough thing. So that's where my motivation came from is, is just, I wanted it. If, if I'm in this circumstance where I live in a culture uh, with this happening and, you know, that was when we started this work, it was pretty close after nine 11 had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to do something that I, I thought could help. And that help would be in the form of what I could offer, which is science. Um, so let's test it out to see if it is helpful. And it, and it proved to be, you know, supportive of that, that view that it is helpful. Um, so, yeah, so I would say broadly speaking, both are, are directions to take, but I wanted to tell you something, and I don't even think you and I have not chatted about this, but to tell you where we're at now. So in, at the end of uh, September, there, there's a meeting of, uh, the UK Ministry of Defense is hosting the first ever mindfulness and defense symposium. And we're going to have 10 nations participating in that international meeting to talk about the kinds of ways in which active duty defense forces are able to benefit from mindfulness training. And I'm one of the co-organizers of that with my colleagues in the UK Ministry of Defense. And the reason that I find that so exciting is because, you know, when we started this work, when I started this work, it was quite lonely. The idea that you could talk to leaders, military leaders about this is like, they're not, they're not going to even want to talk about it. And now uh, there's defense forces around the world that are considering this. And, and it's really in the right um, with the right sort of mindset in the in terms of 
making fit people fit so they can do their jobs well. And from my point of view, having multiple nations come together to do this advantages us because, frankly, the kinds of problems we're up against, also known as the climate crisis and humanitarian need that will be needed, requires collaborative effort in the service of promoting safety and and the good of people. And what kind of world will it be if this will be an added thing in the toolkit of all of those individuals? Um, that to me was very exciting. And so it's, it's a first of a kind kind of effort to talk about this at the international defense level. I think it's very exciting. And I love the kind of stories of like, you know, uh, these major things. I mean, I remember going to John Kabat-Zinn's first eight week training in Worcester, Mass, because Worcester is not that far from Barry. And I used to go a couple of times a week. I thought, what is he up to? It's very interesting, you know, and then, and, uh, you know, this is when his office was in the basement and like all of that. And I think, oh, from these humble beginnings, look at what's happened. And so these moments are very, very exciting. It's very exciting. In fact, John's going to be uh, at that meeting. So I'm <laughs> thrilled about that. And, you know, I think we have to constantly apply the mindfulness to whatever we do. And I think defense mm-hmm. is one of those areas that, uh, having an awareness of what you are doing moment by moment, even if your effort is to promote mindfulness, is very important. You can't lose that uh, meta awareness regarding an effort, and I and I keep think about that often. I think that's great, and and there's also, I guess, there's a kind of group awareness too. You know, of people who have the uh, similar kind of values who can give feedback and also listen. And actually, we should maybe talk about group awareness for a second. Is there such a thing? (laughs) I think so. I mean, we would call it potentially um, team mindfulness. uh, And, Uh you know, in the same way we talk about directing the flashlight of attention toward the environment, we direct it toward other people. We direct it to multiple other people. Uh, And we can even get this sort of gestalt sense of what the group thinks. Um, There's some really cool studies done recently with medical teams that have looked at whether medical teams where people are practicing mindfulness are more cohesive and there's more cohesion, which I think is sort of the group awareness you're talking about. Do we have shared mental models? Do we understand each other? Is there mutual respect and empathy uh, as we're doing difficult things like, you know, whatever medical teams are asked to do? Yeah, I was going to ask you also about uh, any work you were doing with frontline medical people, um, first responders, yeah, we did one project with uh, firefighters, which I think it's interesting because, gosh, there's no such thing as fire season anymore. It's just constant. Mm-hmm. And hearing about what or what are the impacts of of this kind of protracted fire season? Well, of course, property damage and environmental destruction. But the other real cost is that those personnel are so vulnerable uh, to every everything you can think of in terms of uh you know the the challenges that burn out the burnout the um the the trauma the the devastation that that this kind of demand can have on one's life so they in particular i think are a very important group and what's very exciting is that the us forest service is taking mindfulness seriously and there are uh there are people uh that are providing mindfulness training to of uh, first responders of, you know, that particular sort. Um, Some of the other work that we're doing very much 
is in that spirit. So we actually have a project right now offering that same program that was offered to military service members, mindfulness-based attention training uh, that Scott, Scott Rogers and I developed um, to social workers who have been working sort of on the medical front line in some sense over COVID, as well as a collaborative project with Brown University's medical school uh, training faculty members, medical school faculty members in this program to then deliver it to medical students. So they're not quite at the front line yet in terms of their profession, but the medical students are getting this during their professional education, which I think may have a chance of it sticking in a way uh, as a tool as they move forward in their in their professional lives. Which is really, really great and important. Um, so one of the reasons the science, I think, is so important is because uh, people who are, say, first responders, in my experience anyway, are often self-identified as the people who take care of others and have been in the past sometimes quite resistant to practices that they might put down to self-care or something like that. I think this science has been crucial to have an understanding of kind of the um, sweep of changes that can come about from these practices. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, self-care and wellness promotion, psychological health promotion is a very big, important thread of the kind of research that's been done. Um, And one of the directions I'm going in my own lab um, in terms of the breadth of things that mindfulness training may be beneficial uh, for is what we might call sort of operational performance. So does it change the integrity, engagement, enjoyment that you have in your work? And does it allow you to do your job better? So even with, you know, we're talking about medical professionals, does it reduce medical error? Does it make you more likely to actually listen to the full data of what the patient is saying to you before um, just, just assuming that you have an answer? So that, I think, is a different domain of thinking about mindfulness, mindfulness training um, in terms of advantaging you to do your job better, um, especially for those for whom their job and their identity is, is like, well, I don't need help. I help others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's the motivation, well, help others by, you know, having your own emotion regulation intact, your own psychological health intact, and your ability to pay attention to the work that you're doing um, with higher integrity, um, all in the service of, of doing exactly what you choose to do. This is all so wonderful. I'm so, so happy about your book coming out. And I feel like saying, now you can go to bed, which is usually what I would say to you about two in the morning. So you can go to bed now, Michelle. <laughs> well, I want to say to you, Sharon, that, you know, just having this kind of a conversation, all of our conversations over these years, they just continue to inspire me. And what you've, you know, as my teacher, one of the things that I've just continued to learn from you is how do you take uh, concepts and practices that um, are beneficial and bring them to people in a way that that meet them where they are. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for joining me today. And to learn more about Amishi and her work, you can visit her website at com and go get a copy of her brand new book, Peak Mind, which will be available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats wherever books are sold. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. 
Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.